I'd like to begin with a trigger warning. This is completely, utterly mad. You're gone. First, the purpose of the evening is to support Camp Silka and the work they do there to engage young people where they are with the good news of who Jesus is. And I want to make sure that whatever else I say this evening, that is not missed. That we're here because we live in an age where, forgive me as I continue to tinker with this, we live in an age where our young people have so many different messages coming their way. And very early, I think, they learn to dismiss a lot of it but also, they don't realize how much they're being led by the nose by much of it. So to have the opportunity to send them away uh, from the technology, especially, for a little while, and be engaged with real things in the real world. Now, camp's not the real world, but it is. It's more in touch with the real world than most of our daily lives are uh, Something that is easy for us to forget as modern people, uh, how, how deadly this planet is. And it's not that camp is deadly per se, but nature is, is a radical thing. So to have them in that environment and then also be able to engage them with the word of God is, is beyond value. And I think we see a lot of our institutions in the Missouri Synod struggling to maintain financial capacity these days, congregations included in that. And so once there were many, many camps such as this across the nation, not so anymore, uh, you still have one. So to keep it and to hold it and to use it for good is, is a laudable thing in this age. So it's not really the purpose of my talk. I'm sure someone else will get up and rah-rah after me as well. But what I want to talk about tonight is not completely disconnected. Uh, I would like to call it first things. Except, and whether you know this or not, doesn't matter, it's a little inside, uh, there's a magazine, a very famous magazine called First Things, published by a very famous Roman Catholic for many, 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 many years. Still, it's still out there. He's deceased now. Uh, and it wasn't about what I want to talk about, <laughs> uh, which, which to me makes it hard to say it. But it is. I want to talk about first things. And what do I mean by that? I mean something catechetical. What do I mean by that? That's a terrifying word. I mean something that is in your catechism, but what is your catechism? It is nothing other than the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. And in those three things, you have a summary of everything God ever wants to, will, or does say in this present age. So succinctly tied that if you learn to master it as a, a platform for your own kind of thinking, you really can't be deceived by the lies of the present age. Uh, you'll still be tempted, but there's no deception inside of those things. And we, we don't value them enough. I think catechism as an idea is still very strong in the LCMS. But in terms of not an idea that there's this book we're all supposed to know at some point because of a test and then communion and then we're done, but instead as a set of, uh, rules is the wrong thing, but a set of wisdom words by which we can, we can truly understand and see 
differently than the pagans, the unbelievers around us do. Uh, that is uh, really my goal in life, I guess, to recover. And the, my book Echo, which he mentioned, I think, is, uh, is focused on that very idea. So within that then, within your, your Ten Commandments, your Creed, the Lord's Prayer, you have the Creed. Within that, you have these three articles. Oh my goodness. Could, we couldn't get more obtuse as we try to talk about it. We have these three stories about three persons who are each truly God and yet the same God. Of course, the mystery of the Trinity, we could spend all night talking about that. I won't. But in each of these stories, in these all three who are one God, we also see their economy, the way that they work in the world. And in particular, then, they work in the realms of, I know you've heard this, creation, redemption, and sanctification, right? And it is my belief at this point that of all the things that we don't believe in anymore in the United States as Americans, but then as Missouri Synod Lutherans, uh, I think because it's in the water, we've adopted this without realizing it. The one we don't believe in most is not Jesus. We still believe in Jesus. We believe he rose from the dead. And it's not the Holy Spirit. We still believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's why we want to tell the good news about Jesus to everybody. But what we, I think, practically don't believe in anymore is, is God the Father. I think we don't believe in the first article of the creed. Now, what do I mean by that? My goal tonight is to kind of just convince you of this a little bit, but then also uh, to inspire you with it. So let me, let me back up and start. And again, I'm, I'm going to drop a bunch of individual thoughts tonight, and I would ask you if one of them just seems a little out there, well, ignore that one and like stick with the big picture because it's the big picture that matters. But... I don't think it's, uh, well, I don't know you as a group, but I don't think it's outside the realm of this room to say that we see a lot of rather odd and might even call them new problems in American culture. Marriage issues, gender issues, abortion, it's not new, it's still there. Fake news, uh, U.S. monetary policy, which kind of doesn't exist, uh, a rising bouts of depression in very young people, including suicide, cutting, obesity rates across the board, diabetes skyrocketing, illiteracy, a real issue, and pure ignorance of history right up there with it, environmentalism with everything that that word means, and uh, what, what I have to think I call a pacifistic fascism, uh, a rather strange form of tolerance that tolerates nothing. All of these things are obvious to us, right? I, don't, I shouldn't have to defend that there's fights about that going on. What do they all have in common? Well, they all have the Ten Commandments in common. That's what they have in common. They all have the first article of the creed, the way that God designed the world to work in common. Now, I maybe skipped over this point, so I'll, I'll reemphasize it here. In, in the book Echo, and it goes much more into detail on this, I propose that your creed, first article, second article, third article, Father, Son, Spirit, creation, redemption, sanctification, at the center of that is the second article, Jesus, his cross, what he's done for us. And then top and bottom, you've got creation and church. Yeah? And if you just kind of go then Ten Commandments, Creed, Lord's Prayer, you can see that creation is tied to the Ten Commandments and that the Lord's Prayer is tied to the life of the church. 
There's actually a parallel between the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. Super fast example. Second commandment is, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Yeah, don't take the name in vain. And what is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? Hallowed be thy name. Right? So there, there's a tie-in all the way down through this. If you like that idea, echo. That's what's in the book. Um, but, so, all of those things I mentioned before, they tie into the Ten Commandments in some way. Of course, marriage, Sixth Commandment, gender, Sixth Commandment, and Fifth Commandment, your body. Abortion, Sixth Commandment, Fifth Commandment. Fake news, Eighth Commandment. U.S. monetary policy, that would be theft, Seventh Commandment. Depression, that would be, what, spirituality? First Commandment? On and on, it's tied to the way God designed us to work, which means that if we're struggling with these things as a culture, it's because we don't just not believe in one or the other of them, we don't believe in something behind that. And that thing that I think it is, we don't believe we were designed by an ultimate, almighty, and holy God in order to function in a particular way. And of course, the whole story of Christianity is, yeah, of course, we're sinful, we're fallen, we're broken, we've, we've rejected this holy God. And so, yes, there is that. And there is the issue of our being curved inward and evil from birth. But I think it's, it's not just that as well. So as Christians, we can believe in salvation from our sins and from obvious wickedness with nonetheless not going all the way to understanding the world around us and seeking to live our lives in, uh, in that order that God has created. And again, I would suggest that much of what we see as an organization, whether it's Camp Silka or this congregation or the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, that we're struggling with is our disbelief in that design that God has created for us. By that, I want to emphasize, I don't mean any of us are saying, I don't believe in God the Father. I don't believe any of us are saying, I don't believe in the Sixth Commandment. I'm saying that when we walk out of our church front doors on Sunday afternoon, or when we wake up on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, go out for coffee on Thursday afternoon, we do it as excuse me, as practical atheists. Practical atheists. None of us think we're atheists. None of us intend to be atheists. None of us want to be atheists, but we act a little bit like atheists, especially when it comes to this first article stuff. It's become our theology. Now, I'm going to give you two examples here that may or may not hit home for you, but I, I think they're very cl- closely tied to each other. I want to make sure that that goes in the right direction. Yeah. So, my guess is that some of you here, maybe not all of you, but some of you here have at some point in your life sat in a congregational voters' assembly. And my guess is that you generally don't find that experience to be enjoyable. Uh, you find it to be, if not downright boring, then downright painful, uh, perhaps even uh, dangerous. I can remember, at least in two of the parishes I've served, where... Um, I dreaded going into those assemblies, absolutely dreaded it, and uh, because of the way that Christians would act toward each other in that place. And I remember, I remember being told at once, at one point, uh, that the reason that that was okay was because of the two kingdoms theory, 
two kingdoms theory. The idea that there's a right-hand and a left-hand kingdom. The left hand is the government. The right hand is the church. And they're completely different things. So, Pastor, you sit down and be quiet while we run this assembly the way that we think is best, which is democracy, of course. What just happened there? We just used an idea about how God works, ripped from Luther and not really understood very well, in order to get rid of the Eighth Commandment entirely as we deal with managing the needs of word and sacrament in this place, the stewardship of our facilities. That would be then the seventh commandment, the stuff we're trying to take care of together in such a way that we've also told the guy who's there to speak the word of God, the third commandment, told him to be quiet and don't have anything to do with it. We just got rid of three commandments. Okay? Now maybe you haven't seen it happen just like that. It doesn't matter to me. I, I just want to emphasize that the very idea that we could say the left-hand kingdom, right-hand kingdom of God in some way means two different things shows that we don't believe in the created order of God anymore. As opposed to understanding that the government of the fourth commandment has the church in one sense under it and part of it, because we live in this world, in another sense over it and above it, because it's words from another world that tell us how this world's supposed to really work. There is no way we can see between the left-hand kingdom and right-hand kingdom. We are simply living here on earth where the fourth commandment authority applies and where Jesus has risen from the dead and has all that authority in heaven and earth given to him. I'll give you another example that I think at first should seem completely disconnected, but it's, it's not. It's not. Uh, another thing I've noticed in the Missouri Synod, I'm, I'm 12, 13, oh, sorry. I keep thinking I'm younger than I am. I'm almost 14 years a pastor now. Um, it's amazing to me how many lifelong Missouri Synod Lutherans do not have a, a powerful or a driving love for the Lord's Supper. We believe in it. We believe that it is Jesus. We believe in the real presence. But that we would, that we would need it more than life itself. Well, that's just not the common experience of, of really, really any congregation I've been in. The idea that we would have it every week, as the scriptures teach us to do, can be something that causes fights. And, and the most common argument, the moment you ever would bring up, if your pastor hasn't, I'm, well, ask him about it, the moment it would ever be brought up that we should move from, say, quarterly communion, which was the case in a lot of places, to monthly, to every other week, to every Sunday, every service, the most common argument always brought up is this. It's if we have the Lord's Supper too often, it won't mean anything. It won't mean anything. That's a fascinating thing to say since you believe it's Jesus' body. You believe Jesus' body can possibly not mean anything? Now, I'm going to contend again that what that is is not a disbelief that it's Jesus' body. It's a disbelief in the first article created nature, human nature of Jesus' body. And how powerful a thing that is. The Lord's Supper is not a spiritual act alone. Is a physical act, and it's not about you chewing. It's about the man who's not dead, who's also reigning in heaven at the right hand of the Father, all that authority his being used right now to take his own flesh and blood, which is from Adam and yet no longer Adam, divorced from Adam's death and sin, and put it physically into, make himself one with, one with common unionize with you. It's a created order issue. That's what we've lost in that. They're tied to each other. 
What was it that caused Ulrich Zwingli? I don't know if you know his name. You might know the name Calvin better. Calvin came right after Zwingli. Ulrich Zwingli uh, disagreed with Dr. Luther in a very famous debate called the Marburg Colloquy. And he disagreed with Luther about the word is. This is my body. And Luther says it meant that Jesus was on the table. Once, Once it happens, Jesus is present here. And Zwingli didn't like that idea. Zwingli wanted to say that Jesus is in in heaven. And so he can't be here. Why? Because in heaven, he's a man. He's a human man who ascended to heaven. And a human man, if he's in heaven, therefore can't also be here. Because a human body can only do what a human body can do. Now, you might think, okay, he's affirming the creator of earth. That's true. But he's denying God's ability to do with it what he wants. He's denying the Father's ability to manage or change or act upon or continue the created order as he desires. So on the one hand, you have this, it's called sacramentarianism, a a subtle rejection of the real presence of Jesus. On the other hand, you have this two kingdoms idea, a rejection of the spirituality of the present age in all things, And at the heart between these, you have a movement called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment. If you took civics in high school, they probably talked about it for 10 minutes and bored you to tears. Uh, What the Enlightenment was, was a shifting in the ages from, uh, they called it the Dark Ages before, that's not quite fair, but from a spiritual age, an age in which people believed that demons and angels and God had a real finger in everything, to a materialistic age, an age in which we increasingly believe that whatever God might do, he doesn't quite have his finger in it. He he doesn't quite come down and change things. Now, of course, we'll still go and pray for miracles at the hospital, but when it comes to things, again, that are of a more serious and day-to-day nature, well, God's far away. God's far away. Um, Oh, I had a thought that I lost there, and I wanted to use it to to drive that point home. doesn't matter. So this shifting to uh, a materialistic focused age, it dominated everything from the 1500s up until the early 1900s, mid-1900s. It was the main kind of thought in most philosophy, in most artwork, in most music. And then you may have heard these terms before, modernism and then postmodernism. What began to be promoted in the early 20th century and then continued into our present age is this, this, this postmodern idea, which is a swing back. So it's like in, re- in reaction against the belief that the devil was hanging out in the shadows making you sick during the Black Plague, we ran all the way to the other side where there is no devil. Uh, there, there are, shadows are just uh, issues of how the light works. And uh, the Black Plague is nothing but a virus, nothing at all but a virus. And God has no hand in any of this. That's funny. While I was saying that, I caught my thought, I lost, and then I lost it again, all in that that period. It's impressive. Um, Ah, here it is. It's an example. Okay, so I keep fighting against this in myself, and I'm doing it openly in my congregation as well, and yet, in spite of that, I've had recently uh, uh, some of them even come back and and do this without thinking about it. Here's the thing we do. When we look at the miracles of the Bible we have a tendency to want to explain them. So, for example, 
I'll give you the most radical liberal example I can, I can give you. Uh, the historic critics of the, of the 18th century would talk about how the crossing of the Red Sea couldn't have been the Red Sea, obviously. That would be impossible. But just north of there is a place called the Sea of Reeds that at various times, not necessarily every year, will have tidal issues that ebb and flow. And so there's often a body of water there, but sometimes there's not. And so clearly the Exodus story is about a time when they thought they were going to trap the Israelites against that, but it turned out the tide had flowed out, and so they walked through safely, and that explains it all historically, all without any miracles whatsoever. Now, I'm not saying that you do that or that we do that quite, but we kind of do. We have a tendency to prefer the material explanation to things. And if you search for yourself in your own theology, I think you can find it in any case. In, in my other book, Broken, I talk about something that I'm now calling the Skywalker Theory, and I don't know if it's right or wrong. I think it's right. It doesn't matter too much. It, it still illustrates this point, and so it's worth repeating here, about the shifting of these epochs from, from material, like we only believe there's a material world, but there is no God, right, uh, to a spiritual belief in the world that sort of I don't know, it's kicking back against that materialism, but without going to the true God. And I'll try to explain more of that in a moment. But before the first Star Wars movie, that would be episode four, for those of you who are counting, um, in 1977, every movie that you would watch about space was highly materialistic. And, and the, the, the paradigm of this is 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, which is slow now if you watch it, but is very detail-oriented with the realism of space travel and how dangerous it would be. Uh, even though the computer goes crazy and takes over, I mean, I'm not, not sure how unrealistic that is these days. But when Star Wars comes out, it just is out of left field in one sense, and yet it's not. It gives voice to this undergirth growing emotional need for something more uh, than just hard, cold facts. And so even though they're in space with all these weird animals, all this stuff going on, the thing that is the most essential in that movie is that at the very end of it, and spoiler, it's been a while, so if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. Um, the very end of it, they're approaching the Death Star. They're all trying to shoot these torpedoes down this little two-meter hole that a Womp Rat, you know, is about that size, all that. And they have a couple guys that try, it doesn't work, and they're using these targeting computers. So they're flying, and the targeting computer comes on, and they're supposed to help them shoot it in the hole. And Luke's deceased friend, Ben Kenobi, says to him, you know, let go, Luke. Use the force, Luke. And he turns off his computer. He turns off his science. He turns off his science. And then Kenobi says, reach out with your feelings. And he closes his eyes, and he shoots the torpedoes. Now, while that is not quite the way we would do it in church, I'm going to submit to you that he prays the torpedoes, into the, into the hole. Okay? Yeah? He prays them into the hole. Boom, we win. Spirituality makes a comeback, but it's not Christian spirituality. It's, it's a different thing altogether. And again, I'll try to, try to get to that idea. But that shift, whether Star Wars did it or not, it reflects it. It really has happened. Before that happened, however, uh, the modern world managed to leave us something embedded in our law and in our minds, that's sort of like their poison pill. Uh, you know, the triumph of science. The triumph of man's knowledge over creation itself. And um, 
Roe versus Wade in 1973 is the one edge of that that's gotten the most play, and, and in one sense, rightly so, because it's so obviously diabolical. Uh, uh, the, the murder of children, and what we're a couple of days after the life event uh, that happens every year, testifying to this. But I think that, that 1973 is a bit of a mask, and there's more behind that. Uh, that's part of the problem. And so uh, two, two court rulings, I don't have them both written here, but there's two court rulings that happened before Roe versus Wade that are required for Roe versus Wade and, in fact, are even referenced in the, uh, the arguments that the court justices make. Uh, uh, um, I don't have the date for this one written down. Uh, I think it's 1967. Uh, no fault divorce becomes legalized. No fault divorce becomes legalized. This allowed someone of either party in the marriage to divorce with no reason given whatsoever. It effectively said marriage isn't a thing. Uh, before that, getting divorced was very difficult. Uh, now it was very easy. So that happened before Roe versus Wade, and it's not disconnected intellectually from the Sixth Commandment. And then before that, something else happened. 1965, June 7th. And it, it stunned me when I first learned this. I was born in 1978. Uh, and, and so to hear that in 1965, not that far before my lifetime, the world was so different. At June 7th, 1965, birth control was legalized. Just let that sink in. Legalized. Like it was illegal for married couples to use birth control before this. Now, what you might feel about birth control is, is irrelevant to me this evening. What I want to submit to you, though, is that birth control represents something that is a pinnacle of the modern world's disbelief in the God of creation that we have to fight back against somehow. And let me do it by... Um, by pun, I suppose. <laughs> I don't mean, mean a joke, but by the use of words. If somebody doesn't believe in six-day creation, or if somebody doesn't believe in the dignity of a human life as created by God, I mean, you can call us, you can call them pro-abortion if you want, but if we're going to put it in the terminology of the catechism, what they are is they're anti-creation. They're anti-creation. They don't like humans in this created world. If you take that phrase anti-creation and then you flip it to the other side and say, well, I'm not anti-creation. I'm pro-creation. Well, that word has an interesting meaning, doesn't it? Pro-creation. Yeah? I, I don't think I'm crazy. Um, and, and I don't think, by the way, lest you're already upset about this, I don't think that the solution is Women must always have babies, always. Uh, so please don't hear that. Again, I said I'd say a few things tonight that might distract you, so if that distracts you, like, come back to that one. My point here is that somewhere in this marriage gender timeline that at least goes back to this, we're going to have power over a woman's body to make it not really a woman's body as God made it anymore. Somewhere in that we've adopted this I have power over creation mentality. And I think this is not merely Americans. I think that this is very much adopted by us, Missouri Synod Lutherans, and it has spread its tentacles into almost everything else. Almost everything else. Uh, one of the things that, that Luther said, Luther said many good things. One thing he said that was w really well said, though, 
is that a small error at the beginning can lead to a vast error later. And if you prefer math, you draw your little diagram and your small 1% angle is very close initially, right? You let that thing go for 50 years and suddenly it's a lot further up. That's kind of where we find ourselves now. Like, how on earth do people not know a man is a man and is a girl is a girl? I mean, how, how do we not know this? Well, that small error of the body is not real has now come to full fruition. That's exactly the transgender argument. The body is not real. I'm something other than my body. And again, I think this has vast ramifications for us, far beyond the transgender movement itself. Uh, I, I really am not... I'm not here tonight to talk about that per se. I think it impacts uh, every corner of our life. I said it earlier, right? Obesity, diabetes, illiteracy, environmentalism, depression, saving for retirement, all these things. So I don't, I'm going to check my time and then maybe skip something here. I have no idea what that says. Uh, oh, believe. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I just said. Uh, the body is not believed in. Yeah. So, ah, I see where that's going. So the what this turns into is it's made it very hard for us to defend in our heads and our emotions against the the kind of the common way that the average formerly Christian person argues against Christianity today. I know you've heard this too. Um, you know, they, they really grow tired of religion and they prefer spirituality. You've heard that somewhere, I'm sure. Um, it's hard for us to fight back against that on the one part. We just, we're just flummoxed. Like, what? What are you talking about? How can you have one without the other? But then we don't really have categories to put it in to talk about it. And again, I'm going to suggest to you this has everything to do with the human body. The human body. Uh, the person who says, I am spiritual but not religious, means that I have a religion that does not ultimately affect my body, at least not in such a way that other people's bodies would be affected the same way. Instead, I'm able to do what I want when I want and float around. It's a, it's a private religion because it's all inside of me. As opposed to someone who is religious, the one that they would point to, well, the thing they do that's so religious of them is they take their body and they wake up with it on Sunday morning and they drive a little ways and go sit in a building. That's religious, apparently. Now, it's public. More than one person's doing it. There is an order. There is a structure. Uh, there are expectations for you as a human being for a life that changes. All of those things are about your body. And the person who says, I'd, I'd rather have my religion be unbodied, is the one who then therefore finds the excuse they need to stay away from the gospel of Jesus' resurrection. I don't think we're going to convert anybody by telling them how they think their body, or me, by telling them how their religion is bodiless, so ha-ha, that's not going to help. But it could help us understand the problem a little bit more. And just in case that's not clear how they would be converted, they'll be converted by learning that Jesus isn't dead. That's how to be converted. My, the reason I'm already and beginning to harp on this issue of the first article, though, is that the only way they're ever going to hear that Jesus isn't dead is if we say out loud that Jesus isn't dead. And if we do it in more 
than just a few corners of the world uh, for ourselves. And the only way to do that is to leverage the tools that we have at our disposal, our hands, our property, our minds, in order to be as loud as we possibly can. And uh, I don't know how often you've tried to get your congregation to get loud in your community about the resurrection of Jesus, but let me tell you, it's difficult. And the biggest hindrance to it is us. Because we don't believe in the first article. We don't believe it's possible. And we certainly don't want to use the creative gifts that we have to make it happen. We would rather continue living in our, our comfortable little castles, wondering why it's all falling apart, and hoping it'll go away. And strangely, I would say, content to not worry too much about Judgment Day, as if it were a real thing. I had this, this thought and experience last night, and, and it's weird. Every once in a while, do you ever have this happen where, like, you know you believe something, but then, like, it kind of hits? Like, oh, wait a minute. Like, that's really real. Uh, and the, the thought I was, I was pondering with last night uh, was that it's all going to burn. The whole thing is going to burn. This podium, that table, our bodies, potentially. But everything else, the whole world's going to burn. And I, for one, live day to day as if it's not going to burn. I got my Xbox. I got my, my deck in the backyard. I like to smoke my cigars. Those burn anyway, I suppose. But yeah. Um, but th- there's something to that, isn't there? That means all these people out there who are not in churches. I, I stopped at a cigar sp- uh, spot in... Um, uh, Champaign-Urbana on the way over here from Indianapolis today. And uh, uh, the guys in there didn't know I was a pastor, so they were just kind of talking openly, which I don't mind too much. Uh, but one of them, I guess, had come in from church, and somebody else said, oh, everyone's in church. That's why they're not here. And <laughs> I couldn't help myself. I said, no, no, not everyone's in church. He said, well, most people. I said, no, <laughs> not most people. I left it at that. Uh, the vast majority of Americans are not in church. And the ones that are go to churches, they don't tell them about the resurrection of Jesus. They tell them about how to have a better life. It's all going to burn. And what I want desperately is to leverage what we have left here in the Missouri Synod. We're shrinking. We're in a corner. We're socially ostracized from the rest of the nation in many, many ways. I don't want that to be a reason to hide. I want that to be a reason to like buckle down. Double down where you're at. Stand firm on it. Start getting loud. But to do that means we have to engage these first article things as if they're real. We can't treat church organization like it's a hobby. We can't treat our bodies like it doesn't matter. It's just not the way it is. God bought this. You. He bought you. You know the rest of that verse, by the way? That was my confirmation verse. I was, it usually makes me feel guilty. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your, your body. Um, it's about sexuality in the narrow, but it's never just about sexuality in any case. So, the next, this next thing may be a little bit of inside baseball again, and, and if it is, I apologize. But you know, what has the LCMS done in response to these issues that I have left before you, that that we have a practical disbelief in the world 
in the first article, and certainly in the culture, a very real disbelief that God created it as it is and it's good. What have we done? Now, I'm not asking about the organization and the church body officials. I'm talking about what are we doing if you look at where we make noise? And if you look online where we make noise, the Lutheran argument takes two parties. Uh, On the one side, there are those who think we need to adopt the most pragmatic, revivalistic tools possible. We need to get all the best instruments, all the best music, all the best technology, and just put on a big show like the sacramentarians do, and it'll all work out. That's one side. On the other side, you have those who say, well, we should hold on to the doctrine. We should hold on to the liturgy. Uh, We should hold on to what the Bible clearly says. And what that means is right now, we should spend all our energy arguing with each other about the third use of the law and how the ones who disagree with me about that are all not really Lutherans. We'll give all our resources to that. And so you have, on the one hand, a whole group going out trying to be Baptist, or look Baptist, trying to not have their bodies look Lutheran. Uh, And you have a whole group not going anywhere, arguing about something that no one has a clue what they're talking about. I think both sides leave us entirely susceptible to loss at the devil's hands because neither addresses the main issue. The main issue facing us is not the worship wars, it is not Roe versus Wade. It is not divorce and or homosexual marriage. It is not birth control. It is not female pastors. The chief issue is asking what it means when we say, I believe in one God, the creator. Even as I say that, it's like, when do we argue about creation as Christians right now? There's only one place we argue about creation. Six days. Six-day creation evolution, right? And by all means, I, I, I think it's an important theological point. I mean, the Bible says something very clearly. But even that really doesn't matter. Six days does not matter nearly so much as Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit before death entered the world. That matters far more. But even that, then, is not the thing I think we don't believe anymore. Not, not, not in the way I'm describing it. We don't believe in the creator who made every single facet of this life to marvelously work the way it's supposed to work. And that even though our sinful condition, our curved inward on ourselves, nature, tends to use those things for our own personal benefit and thereby harm others and thereby make the whole thing break down eventually. God's not doing any of that and he's still sustaining it and what he sustains is still good. Which means we have this unique superpower as Christians, it's really incredible when we figure it out. We, we just normally don't do it. But do you know as a Christian, you can be wrong? Like it's really okay to be terribly wrong. Because when you, when you find out you're so wrong that you trip and you, you smack your face on the ground falling hard, the rock that you fall in is Christ. The rock that you fall in is the grace of Jesus who will not abandon you. So in that, then, we have this amazing superpower to try, fail, and try again. To confront each other with issues that we think are wrong without having to hate each other in the process. It's it's incredible. And just recapturing that alone, as we talk about things like marriage and the ordering of our congregations and how we handle the more or less money 
that we're finding in the in the present generations and the, the money the wealth gap between the boomers and the Xers and the millennials uh, all of those things are easy when we understand and believe in the created order and the fourth commandment now I'm, I'm getting here toward uh, toward a conclusion I think I still have am I still good for time okay um, so I have one more kind of picture and then and then uh, moving into the conclusion but I want to give you one more example. As this one, uh, I don't know, maybe it, maybe it doesn't help that much. Um, but when I said fourth commandment a moment ago, I probably have a lot more in my head that that means to me um, that I, I should try to say. Now, Luther teaches us, and he's, he's right, uh, that in the fourth commandment, the nature between father and son, specifically being a reflection of God and Jesus, right? Uh, that in that, all other relationships, particularly authority relationships, are created by God or, or um, officially made by God. And so everything that has to do with, with structure and order that we see in this life is part of the fourth commandment. I mean, uh, to put it really crassly, gravity is part of the fourth commandment in that regard. Uh, you don't get to break the authority of gravity. It's going to do what it does. It's a force of nature. Uh, so it's not just fathers and sons. It's also the natural world. Uh, it is also then how organizations of people work, how communities of people work. And the way Luther would talk about that is you have fathers of families, you have fathers of cities, and you have fathers of congregations. Now, with all that as an aside then, uh, one of the things I remember hearing decried a lot uh, in, in more conservative, which I'm definitely on the conservative end of things, more conservative Missouri-centered circles. And this is idea that uh, was postulated by the church growth movement. This is a, a, a Methodist movement out of the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, that because we're behind on everything in the Missouri Center, we got really, we started thinking it was really cool in the 90s. So they're all doing it 30, 40 years ago. We started doing it in the 90s. Um, it has its positives and negatives, but one of the things that it would talk about is making the pastor into more of a CEO figure, a CEO figure, a chief executive officer. And, uh, um, well, my end of the woods went berserk over that idea. Pastors are not CEOs. Pastors are cares of souls. Uh, pastors are there only to preach the word of God and not to organize or manage anything. And initially I thought, well, that makes sense. Um, but then the more I ponder it, the more I, I think it, it really just it illustrates the problem. Because if you think about the word CEO, I, I explained the letters a moment ago, chief executive officer. And then you make this bold pronouncement that a pastor is not the chief executive officer of a congregation. I think you have an incomplete sentence or thought. Because the question is, what would be executed in a congregation? What would there need to be done? Why do you have church? What's it for? You got this building is beautiful, by the way. Um, what's it for? And I'm I'm pretty confident, and we can debate it if you like, but I'm pretty sure it's here, so that you are absolved of your sins, and feast upon the flesh and blood of Jesus your whole life long. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that's the main idea, right? Word and sacrament, we call it. Okay, well, is word and sacrament, preaching, handing out bread and wine, baptizing, marrying, is that something that needs to be executed? Well, absolutely. Someone's got to do it. Okay, so who does that? Well, the pastor. Oh, 
So is the pastor the chief executive officer of the holy ministry? That's exactly what he is. And the question to me then is, so why would we think that the chief executive officer of the holy ministry should be over there in a corner and then the organization and management of everything else should be over there? Why have we segregated spiritual from material as if they don't overlap and go together? And I'm not advocating that pastors should be in charge of everything. That's not what I'm saying either. I'm asking why have we divided body from spirit? Why have we done that? Because it, it can't be good for us. Now, I don't know that I have some magical answer other than to say I think we, I included, just need to constantly be aware of this and freely desiring to repent of it, questioning the world. I mean, if you believe there's fake news out there, and I don't know anybody who doesn't think there's fake news on one side of the argument or another. If you believe there's fake news out there, then why on earth are you still listening as if anybody's speaking the truth at all? Why are you assuming that this world is not run by originally sinful, critically wicked human beings who only desire to use you for their own financial benefit? Because that's what they're doing all the time. Every single time you flick it on. I'm not saying turn it off. I'm saying listen differently. Listen like you're different. So that's the first place to start. Questioning the information and remembering that the foundation of the apostles and prophets that be your Old and New Testament is the absolutely substantial ground on which you can always, always remain steadfast. And then, of course, I said earlier that the Ten Commandments, Creed, and Prayer all give you a, a complete summary of that. But in that, then, as I, as I advocate we need to repent of our disbelief in the created order, the answer always must be in the second article. Right? Jesus. Now, that can be very trite-sounding, but I think it's less trite when you remember things like the judgment and the burning of the, of, of the earth and the heavens with fire and that God made it all good, but we're the problem with this thing. When then you come back to a, a belief or a hope that this one man, this one body, about my size, a little younger than me, was brutally murdered and buried and sealed and then didn't stay dead. And then coming out from that grave, didn't just say, hey, cool, everything's great. He didn't say that at all. He said, I bring peace to you. I have all authority now. Now go, baptize, teach. Baptize, teach. When that becomes not merely a a spirituality, but a religious fervor, a historical fact. And the phrase that is is continually coming at me these days, and it really doesn't matter which one you would use, he is risen just as he said. I mean, that, that's, that's one thing. But the one that keeps getting my own head when I start to struggle and doubt is that the Lord reigns in Zion. Zion, the Old Testament for Jerusalem, the, the city on the hill, the, the mountain stronghold of King David. But now, more than that, God's church, his assembling of people out of darkness into light. And so, at the right hand of the Father, he is over Zion now. The world to come, we'll call it Zion then. But it's, it's here now. Not seen, but truly here by word. Right? By word, spirit, sacrament, and faith. The Lord reigns in Zion It's all going to burn because he's the king of it. He's the king of it. And he's decided to wrap it up and throw it away, but not throw you away. 
He's decided to pluck you like a brand from the fire, blow you off, and regraft you into a living tree, which is his own flesh and blood. The Lord reigns in Zion. That means that no matter what issue you are thinking about or facing right now, marriage, gender, abortion, fake news, monetary policy, depression, obesity, diabetes, illiteracy, environmentalism, pacifistic fascism, and more, coronavirus, anybody? No matter which thing you are wrestling with, the Lord reigns in Zion. Not a single thing comes to pass without his knowing it ahead of time, forgiving it ahead of time, and planning to curb it back into your good as a member of his body, the church. To believe that and have it change how I walk out the door on Monday morning is a fight I'm still fighting. As a young man in this country, raised on media, it's hard. It's hard not to think it's all a movie. Some big story. And then I go off and I live the American story of health, wealth, and power. It's hard to fight against those things. But what keeps me hopeful is not how much I've failed, but how much I know the Lord reigns in Zion. The only reason I'm here talking to you at all is because that's true. It's truer than all my failings. The Lord reigns in Zion, one man holding crown, power, and sword. Hmm. Now, I used to think that this would be a... Um, we're really moving to the close here. I used to, to think that, that this movie was, was well-known and, and people would understand it when I talked about it, but I find more and more nobody knows, which uh, blows my mind. So I'm going to ask for a show of hands. Sorry if this is embarrassing, but um, The Matrix... Okay, not bad. Good. Some of younger people. A lot of young people have never seen the stinking thing. Um, don't watch two and three; they're terrible. But but <laughs> so one's pretty good. So about half of you haven't seen it though. Uh, long story short, it's the future. Hundreds of years, machines have taken over. Humans are batteries uh, that you know we have. We have like a battery charger thing that's pulling power out of us to run the computers in the back of our heads. But while they're doing that, they've made us make believe live in a world just like this one. And then. The main character, Neo, well, he learns it's all a lie and kind of gets taken out of the battery pack and joins the human rebellion against the machines in the futuristic world. But it's all done inside the computer so he can use his mind to make you know, the matrix, the computer system, you know, bend and flow and he has superpowers, all that kind of thing. But the point of that is that when he wakes up for the first time, right, he's been told that you're in this pod being treated like a battery. Like he meets this guy, uh, uh, played by Lawrence Fishburne, at a, at a nightclub, and the guy says, you know, that's what's happening, happening right now. You can join the resistance or not. Blue pill, red pill, take one. You wake up, take one. Uh, you just go back to the way things were. And he takes the, I forget which color it is, he takes the pill to, to join the resistance, and, and then suddenly, you know, he's, he's yanked out of this, days he'd been living in, which was reality. It was everything that was normal to him, but it's, it's not real. He's yanked out of it. His eyes are wide open. He sits up. He's in this you know, amniotic fluid battery pack that he's the heart of, and then he gets dumped out like trash, but his eyes are so big because he can see. For the first time, he can see reality. I'm going to submit to you again. That's what Christianity is. You have the power to see reality in ways the world cannot. You can see creation in ways the world cannot. For all of that's wrong with it, but also for all of what's, what's right with it. 
And the power within that, the heart and center of it, is the truth that no matter what else it looks like, you're immortal. You're immortal now. You can't die. He is risen, just as he said. You can't die. Oh, Pastor, we see people die all the time. Of course you do, and they're not dead if they're Christians. They're just sleeping. You're immortal now. You can't die. You can't lose. So what are you afraid of? I'm talking to myself as much as you. So stop putzing around with the chaff. Start taking some extreme ownership of your faith. Trust. I've started, uh, that's the final thing, I've started uh, every morning, I try to spend some time in uh, mindfulness, which is a form of, of breathing meditation, helps calm me a little bit. Um, but also prayer, right there with it. And I've started closing it the same way every day. Uh, I, I also, in my congregation this year, well, every year we do a stewardship thing, and we, we make a financial commitment, and we make a spiritual commitment, uh, uh, something we're going to try to do more in the year. And I always try to tell them to figure out how to hit two birds with one stone. And so uh, one of them is get an app that speaks the Bible to you, and one of them was pray a psalm a day. So I found an app that would speak a Bible to me and had it play a psalm a day. It's like, kaboom, two and one, right? Um, so I've been doing that every day. It's great. It's been, it's been really wonderful. Uh, and in that, the words of the Psalter have become even more dear to me than they were before. But this, this one set, um, I've now taken to repeating it every day. It's not all from the same psalm, but I'm going to leave you with it tonight. The Lord is my refuge and my fortress my God in whom I trust. He shall deliver me from the snare and hide me from the deadly pestilence. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. One thousand may fall at my right hand, ten thousand at my right side, but I shall not be moved. I shall only look with my own eyes upon the recompense of the wicked while no plague comes near my tent. I shall tread upon the lion and trample the serpent underfoot because he will answer me when I call to him. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Thank you for your time this evening. safe space. Compulsory insanity. I'm going... Yes, completely, utterly... If you're doing what everyone else is doing, you're doing it bad. Was that worth a dollar? Click the Patreon link in the show notes to sign up. Pretty please? 